Well, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Jacob Warren. I serve as one of the pastors here. I am the lead pastor here at Veritas Church. And so if you're new to Veritas, know that uh, we are glad that you're here. We're really glad that you've chosen to come join and worship with us this morning. Or if you're joining us online, we're really glad that you're joining us in that way as well. But in either place that you're joining us, we would like to invite you to something this morning. I know it's early on in the gathering, but if you got a Connect card on the way in, uh, this week community groups are going to be launching uh, for our summer term. And so uh, we meet together in our community groups outside of the Sunday morning gatherings like this because community groups are central to the way that we do life together as a church. It's the place where we read the Bible together, the place where we eat meals, so we get to know each other really well, we pray together, and we strategize about how we can reach the city for Jesus. Uh, we, it gives us a practical avenue to do mission, a place to invite our neighbors over to. And so this month of April, April has been a month of rest for us as a church. Uh, so every community group, um, for the most part, has ceased meeting to some degree or another so that they can rest together, because I don't know about you, if you've in, been in leadership of any position, uh, leadership is hard. A re, a leadership should have rhythmic elements to it, right? Just imagine if you worked your job seven days a week for like the rest of your life. You need rest. We're made for rest, and we'll hear about that next week. Uh, that's next week's sermon. Come back for that one, right? Uh, but today, uh, I want to invite you to those community groups because this week, they're launching, and this is the best time to really sink roots here at Veritas and say that, no, I'm going to be a part of this family. I'm going to link arms with these people together in mission and really sink roots and become a part of the family here at Veritas. And so I promise you, you won't regret investing relationally in, in biblical community, uh, seeing others grow in their faith. Maybe you've, you're a seasoned saint. You've been walking with Jesus for a really long time. I can, I can honestly tell you, as somebody who's been walking with Jesus for a long time, not as long as some of, uh, of others, but seeing others grow in their faith, having their eyes open to the realities of Scripture in the context of a community group has been one of the deepest joys as a follower of Jesus. I love it, and I think you'll love it too. And so, um, at the very least, hey, you'll get to eat a really good meal this week. Uh, I don't know if some of you guys missing home cooking and like potlucks and that kind of thing. Uh, all of our community groups this week will be celebrating together, and so at least go get a free meal. Just, just be a straight up like, hey, I'm going to come get my, my, my goods here, and then if you just get some child care for like the next 30 minutes, I'm sure that most of y'all wouldn't deny that as well. So if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible, or we're going to go ahead and, and jump in to Genesis. This is the very first book of the Bible, and so if you've got one, uh, you know where it is. Uh, maybe this is your one of your first times being at a gathering on a Sunday morning, and guess what? you know where to go. It's the first book. So it's the first page of the Bible. We are still on page one together. This is our third week in the, in the, in the series in Genesis. And this is a book of beginnings. See, Ryan has shown us for the past couple weeks that Genesis isn't just an ancient science or textbook, but that God gave us to, uh, to tell us, a, uh, he gave us this book to tell us about himself. He gave us this book to show us about his character and his attributes, and we really do believe that the first sentence in the Bible shows that God is the main character in the story, that from Genesis to Revelation, this book that God has given us is about himself primarily, showing us what he's like. I think very few of us grew up devoid or distanced from an idea of who God was at all. 
there'd be, there'd be, I would dare say, that many, very few of us in the room would say, I had no idea there was even a concept of God, even from my youth. See, most of us still have this mental image painted in our mind of some divine being who existed out there somewhere in the ether, powerful and beyond our comprehension. And so depending on where you grew up, if you grew up in a, in a different religion or if you grew up in a certain brand of Christianity, uh, you, know, you may have thought that this creator God was mainly concerned about the beginnings of all things. He kind of set the top spinning and backed away slowly, right? Maybe that's your idea of what, who God was and how he's revealed himself. But maybe you developed the idea that God was primarily concerned with the intimate details in your life and was just waiting for you to step out of line so he could snap you with a lightning bolt like Zeus. Maybe that's been your idea and impression of God. But we need to read Genesis in its context and who it was written to. See, the original context of the writer of Genesis, Moses, was writing to the Israelite people. He was writing to a people who was very much like ourselves. They were asking the same questions about God like we were and we do. Questions like, who is this God? What is he like? Is he just a, just a bigger version of us up there in the sky? Does he care about the details of our lives? Or did he just, in the beginning, kind of set the universe spinning, and it's up to us to find our way on our own now? See, thankfully, the Bible has answers for these questions. And further, the answers that these questions reveal to us some incredibly good news. These aren't just facts to be memorized. This is good news for us to rejoice in, even on these very first pages of Genesis. See, but for us to hear the good news and not just latch on to the facts, see, we, in order to grab hold of these answers that the Bible gives, we must humble ourselves. It takes humility to receive these words as good news. See, we need to lay aside the things that we often want to read into the Bible and meet God as he's revealed himself through his word on his own terms. And I really do believe that this morning that if we ask God to give us fresh eyes to see his word, he's going to grant us to, to see his word more clearly. And so I just prayed a few moments ago um, for individual things that God would incline our heart to his testimonies, that he would open our eyes and unite our hearts to fear his name and satisfy us in the morning with his steadfast love. If you want to think about that, there's a, there's a helpful tool by a guy named John Piper, and it's called his IOUs, I-O-U-S. It's from those scriptures from Psalm 119, 86, and 90. I invite you to pray those things often and regularly as you open up your Bible, and I know that God is going to grant those prayers to open your eyes to see his word more clearly. So if you've already got your Bible out, open it to Genesis 1, turn that thing on, and meet me in verse 26. We'll start there and be reading through the end of the chapter, okay? Here we go. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, and after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over all the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth. 
And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on all the face of the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit, and you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. These early verses of Genesis are so dense and powerful. I know that Ryan joked a couple weeks ago that we could next spend the next like 27 years if we preach through this thing one verse at a time. And I'm considering it, you know. It's, it's so good. It's so good. But no, no, these verses, even the poetic construction of this creation account is so beautiful. It's like the well that you can return to again and again and again, and it keeps, the, the water just keeps getting fresher and more clean and more enjoyable. It's like the mine that you can keep mining again and again, and it just keeps on producing more gold, more jewels for you. See, unlike any other creation account from the Israelite history, those neighbors that Israel had at the time, this paints a picture of God that is in absolute control over his universe. This true God, the Israelite God, commands absolute control over his universe. You stop to think about this yet in the series, that God effortlessly commands even the greatest stars in the most distant galaxies that we know about to be. He speaks and they are. No deliberating, no fight, no grand gestures, no I I need to flex a little bit in order to get this done. No, God speaks and it is done. He calls the mountains, the greatest mountains, to just come forth and they obey his word. In the first three of God's work days, he forms the entire universe. In the following three, he fills his creation to the brim with life. And now we see at the end of day six that God has one final act of creation, the crescendo, his masterwork. And you know what it is? It's us. It's us. It's really baffling. Uh, you know, in all of creation, the highest honor, the greatest crowning work is us. See, in my mind, in, in my Western mind, I often think it's like the first thing that gets the highest honor, right? If, if you ain't first, you're last, you know, kind of mentality. Yeah, I'm just that version of redneck, you know. If I don't get it first, that's got to be the best thing, right? But in God's mind, this, and in the Hebrew mind, the last thing would have immediately evoked the attention of this is what it's all been pointing to. This is the thing it's really about. All of the creative work, even on the days that he says, he doesn't say that there's goodness, it's because nothing directly benefits mankind. Mankind is what this creation account has been about. And so, you know, even Leonard Skinner's first self-titled album, you know what the last song on the album was? Probably the only Skinner song you know. Freebird, right? They waited to last, too. The greatest of their creative effort, you know, the song that's, you know, on repeat on every place ever that you've ever been, right? That song created last on it. They're saving the crowning piece of their creation for last, too. See, what I want us to slow down and see this morning in these verses, though, is that we need to marvel over these things that seem so simple at first. But we need to really see the divine beauty here. We need to see and marvel at what God has done in revealing these last few verses of of Genesis chapter 1. And he shows us three main things. 
Three main things that we need to see this morning are God creates humans in his own image. There's a lot in that statement. Two, God creates humans, male and female. That's very good. Verse 31 tells us that's very good. And then three, God commissions human beings, some I don't understand this, but he commissions human beings to be his representatives to rule and fill on earth. Have you ever stopped to think about this? This is the last creative day that God has with his creation, and he doesn't descend on the planet and, and begin to rule. What does he do? He commissions us as his divine representatives to go into the world to fill it and to rule it. This is baffling. We should marvel at this this morning. Let's begin in that first point. God creates humans in his own image. See, humans are unique in all of creation in being made in the image of God. Now, theologically, this term is called the imago Dei. That means Latin for just being the image of God. And so if you ever hear someone say imago Dei, that just means image of God. We reflect his, 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 uh, his glory, his splendor, his goodness. And in all of creation, we are meant to reflect the image of God to the rest of us. Even in Romans 8, in Romans 8, the, all of creation is groaning, waiting inwardly, waiting for the sons of God, waiting for the image of God to be displayed in its splendor in all the earth. And so this presents a problem for us, maybe even on just page one of the Bible, because we all know in here that if a guy goes outside, chops down a tree, carves it up into what we would call an idol, something bad's about to happen, right? Idols are bad. But this word here, imago Dei, the image of God, that we're made in the image of God, you know what the other implications of this are all over through Genesis? It's in reference to idol making. So when you have God creating man in his own image and likeness and then placing us in his creation. See, God has seen it very good to place us as his image bearers at the very center of all creation. Humans who reflect his divine image. There's a mystery here. We are different than all of creation. And all the other days, all the other things that were created, the animals, the stars, the sun, moon, light and dark, all of that, we are created in the image of our God. We, we have, we're human beings, we're with physical beings, uh, uh, with bodies and uh, like, uh, like blood and brain, but we are also spiritual beings that are made in the image of our Father God. That means that our physical bodies may die, but death is not the end for us. We continue on in a spiritual sense. And that doesn't mean that our physical bodies are unimportant, but it does mean that our actions and decisions have eternal significance because humans are spiritual beings. And that means that we have to take our actions really seriously. In particular, how we treat other image bearers, other humans made in the image of God. And this, for us, is going to be an issue of first importance, how we treat other image bearers. The worst atrocities that have ever happened on this planet is when there's some type of subcategory for humans. When we inwardly or externally assign some subcategory to divine image bearers, where we say that there's humanity, and then there's this other subcategory of humanity. When that happens, we commit genocide, 
we abort the unborn. Those who become, you know, secondary in some way, unwanted, compromised, or inconvenient for us, we create a category by which we can get rid of them. This is a first issue of importance for us as image bearers of God. That means there are no second-class humans. None. You're either a human or you're a part of the other created order. You're either made in the image of God or you're not. And so this has really practical implications for us. It brings so much dignity to just being a human made in the image of God. And so for, so for those of you that are single in here, maybe for those of you that are younger, or maybe those of you who are older walking in singleness, it means if you're single, you are not incomplete. You're not lacking. You're not just in a holding pattern waiting for something else to happen to you. You're an image bearer of God. You can uniquely display God's character through the world through your singleness. You are not lacking. No human being, it's though, is called to do their walk as a human completely alone. We're all called into the family. We're all called to be in relation to one another. And so man's not created independently from woman. We'll see that in just a minute. We're supposed to not be alone. And chapter 2 is going to tell us it's really not good if man's alone. So we are created by God that exists in eternal community with himself for community. It also means that there's an, also a privilege and an honor to marriage that's bestowed here. If you're married, your union with your spouse can display the image of God as he intended, man and woman working together in partnership to accomplish his aims for the world. That means that we, all of us, every single one of us, have to acknowledge that for all of us, there's going to be an inward tendency to create this hierarchy where we add sub, subcategories to humans. But we've got to remind ourselves, all humans are God's image bearers no matter what. No matter their beliefs, no matter where they're ge geographically located on God's planet, no matter their, their race, their ethnicity, their color of their skin, or even the sin that they've committed or horrible things that they've done, image bearers are image bearers. Because of God's very good design to make all humans with absolute equality in his, God, in his eyes, that ought not make us ask the question on whether or not we can see it with our own eyes. I think it might be helpful to ask yourself the question, who is it easy for me to judge? Who is it easy for me to internally devalue in some way? That's going to be the slope that gets you to subcategories of humans there. How do I see myself as superior or in some way to others? Because that's going to help me inwardly justify a way that I can devalue someone else in my mind. No, the image bearers of God are image bearers of God, and we treat them with dignity and value and respect because they're do it. Not because they're innately endowed with those things, because God has spoke those things to be true. God has given those human beings dignity, value, and worth. He has commanded these things to be so, and they were. So God values his image bearers so much. Fast forward to the story of the Bible that he is going to become one. He's going to take on this image-bearing manhood, and he's going to, God in his sovereign, knowing the game plan, he's going to take on human flesh, and ultimately he's going to die to redeem those image bearers. So although there's no hierarchy, 
established in the creation of humans, that doesn't mean there's no distinction. Okay? So second point, God creates humans, male and female, and that is really, really good. Okay? This clear distinction is shown in verses 27 and 28. Meet me there again. Let's read those things again. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Ooh, sorry, back up. Verse 26. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's important to note in verse 26, that first usage of let us make man in our image, it probably there's a footnote there for you. If you look down at that thing, that actually means all of mankind. The same word is used here, but this word is meant to encapsulate what it means for all of humanity. Maybe even thinking the word humans here might be more helpful than thinking of the word just man, because man tends to denote masculinity here, right? And so, in verse 27, we are given the first poem of the Bible, stressing the creative nature of God, and the result is the creation not of just humans, but of distinct men and women, man and woman. Together, they are the crowning jewel of God's creation. And God saw it good to make humans in his own image by creating them differently than each other. He calls this, in verse 31, very good. But then the question is then, what are we to make of this very good distinction between men and women? Now, it's important to note that this, that people are going to disagree over this. In particular, in the church, we've got a long history of disagreeing with things, with each other, so much to the point that we're willing to divide over these things. And so, although the teaching of the image of the Imago Dei, that all humans are humans, no matter what, is an issue of first importance. Some of these matters I'm about to talk about are issues of second importance, where we can disagree about how to apply what's here in the Word, because God's Word doesn't change, but we can disagree a bit on the application here. But throughout history, these distinctions between men and women, some of those teachings have been used to justify abuse. Some of them have been used uh, to propagate demeaning practices within the church and promote outright heresies in the church. I'm grateful for many of the church fathers that got it right on a lot of like matters of weighty theological importance, but that just because you got one answer on the test right doesn't mean you got every answer on the test right. Or, you know, my high school needs to, you know, change that, man, that transcript for me, right? I need a lot higher number on that thing. I need to go back to NC State and tell them, hey, let's make that three of four, actually, there on that transcript. No, if you've got one answer on the test right, that doesn't mean you got them all right. And so what I'm grateful for is the ways in which we have got this right, but that doesn't mean we get everything right. What I want us to be clear about what the Bible says here is that we have a watching world waiting for us to disagree on something else. And so I want to make it clear that for some, at Veritas, our views on sexuality may seem too conservative for some and others too progressive. But our desire is to be unapologetically committed to what God says in his word and to be humble when we disagree. Humble when we disagree. See, the elders here at Veritas ascribe to these beliefs, and some of you may differ from those beliefs here. And I, I just need you to know, 
We consider this thing as an open-handed issue here at Veritas. You can be a partner and disagree with me on this, and that is completely okay. See, God's first words about when women and men are about their likeness. So with that said, it seems to me that God, by making men and women distinctly different, yet the first word being about their likeness, it leads to a few conclusions here. And these will come up on the screen for us. First, women and men are equal in dignity, value, and worth. Equal. Two, women and men are complementary by divine design. They're meant to fit together like matching uh, puzzle sets, things coming together to make the whole. Women and men are to be equally involved but not interchangeably involved in God's mission for his church. So the elders at Veritas would say that theologically we are generous complementarians. This informs the way we see the Bible lay out specific roles for men and women in the church. And so uh, here's maybe a helpful example for you. Uh, I don't know about you. I grew up in a, in a time where my parents loved to watch Dancing with the Stars. Maybe you still like to watch Dancing with the Stars, but the, every season starts like this. They get a bunch of uh, celebrities who don't know nothing about dancing with a whole bunch of people who are experts about dancing. And you know what they don't do? They don't match up the men with the men and the women with the women. They get a man and a woman, they pair them together, an expert with a celebrity, and through that, the team that wins at the end of the season is the one in which they work the best together. They're able to give and take with one another. They're able to learn from one another. They're able to work together in unity for, in partnership with each other in order for both to flourish in that competition. And so these, both of these roles working together lead to human flourishing is the idea that's on page one of the Bible about men and women. Both men and women are necessary and needed for the health and ministry of the church. This is what this means. Godly, godly men and women should be visible partners in the corporate life of the church, deploying their diverse gifts for the good of the body. All Christians are meant to contribute to the ministry of the church. And so this means is not only do we desire for men and women serving in every possible way in the church, but we also need men and women serving in every possible way in the church outside of the role of elder. If you have more questions about why we believe that one particular piece, I'd love to talk with you after the gathering or share with you a really helpful position paper from another church that would just clear this issue up for you, at least show you a better way of what I believe on this and articulate in a way that I can't. It's just so good. So what we've got here is a good and right distinction between men and women by God. But the primary aim of Scripture on page one is not to laundry list our differences or what we're allowed to do or not do. The Bible's first word about men and women is celebrating God's image shown to the universe through them. God creates both men and women distinct from one another, and that is essential for fulfilling his purposes in the world. And that's what we're going to look at next. Look at verse 28 with me. Verse 28. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed on its face of, or over all the earth and every tree and its seed with its fruit, and you should have them for food. To every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth 
everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. If you'll notice, just a few verses above this, where the the birds and the fishes are made, God creates them and blesses them as well. But only here does God speak to his creation and expects to be comprehended. He expects to be understood. I want to call your attention that there isn't even a hint that the humans wouldn't joyfully obey the word of their God. Verse 30 almost casually says after God's commission, and it was so. You ever said that to your kids? Hey, kids, I want you to do this, and it just was so? It's never that easy. I've got three kids. It's never that easy. See, it, it's like, uh, you know, it works like clockwork together. It's like quoting the office to millennials. It just always works. You know, someone says, Michael, what do I say about yeppers? Yeesh. And like, it happens every time, or at least in the office it does. So God's word to humanity at the end of day six here can be broken down to a number of main parts, and here's just a few. God's commission to fill and rule the earth, to fill it with image bearers, to form and fill like God, if you will. Second, God's provision of food for the man and the animals that God just doesn't create. He, he, he sustains, he provides, and he cares about all of creation, not just the humans. And then finally, this pronouncement of creation that was very good. And why was it good? It's because the work of creation is done. And all that's left for God to do is sit back and enjoy his creation. He's about to do that on his seventh day of rest. This is the picture that day six ends with. God's people in God's place with God's presence, under God's rule, experiencing God's blessing. See, the the man and the woman are on the earth, the dry land, with the sustaining and providing presence of God, filling and forming the earth as his earthly representatives. This is really good news. This is an idyllic picture for us. Because we don't have time to dive into what all of those things mean in depth, we're going to look at two things to close, uh, uh, what God means by filling the earth and ruling the earth. So filling the earth first. I think the the easiest question is to ask here, you know, and it seems pretty elementary, but fill the earth with what? Divine image bearers. How do we do that? Have babies. Like, that's just physically what that means. Like, get to work, y'all. It's time to fill the earth. Like, it's that divine order is still in place, whatever. No, but that's not the extent of all of this. In Genesis 5, uh, verses uh, 1b through 3, it says this, when God created man... He made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. He blessed them when he named them man when they were created. Now, listen to this. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth, meaning I've gotten a man. Like, I have another Adam filling the earth with a divine image bearer. See, God's delight is seeing his creation flourish with those who bear his image. We need to realize that because man has rebelled against God, though, the part of us that bears this image is blurred by our sin. It's marred by our sin. The second part of multiplying the image of God is not just having physical children, but spiritual ones. There's a spiritual reality and a a future spiritual truth coming here, and it's only made possible by the work of Jesus. See, Jesus is going to pick up on this language to be fruitful and multiply. He didn't mean have babies. He commands his church, his disciples, to go into all the world and make disciples in Matthew 28. 
See, God's game plan from the beginning would be to fill the earth with image bearers who obey his word. Like his original creation in the beginning, joyfully, obediently obeying his command. And this is only made possible by the work of Jesus. Because I don't know about you, you know, when, when I tell my kids to do something and they don't do it, I'm just seeing what God sees in me all the time. He's clearly commanded me. He's clearly given me things to do. And what do I do? I choose something else. I choose to go a different way. I choose to disobey, just like my kids do. Thank God for the work of Jesus. Colossians 1, Colossians 1 tells us that the work of Jesus has accomplished like this. And hear the Genesis language all over this passage in Colossians 1. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's the new Adam. Hear the Genesis 1. Jesus truly displays the image of God. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. He's the creator. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. He is the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He might be first. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Remember that mirrorism from Genesis 1, in heaven and on earth, meaning everything in between, head to toe? Whether on heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what does Jesus redeem? Everything. Heavens and the earth, everything in between. This is the grand goal of all of creation. God knew this was going to happen. And in himself, Jesus is the bridge spanning the divide between heaven and on earth. He is the only truly obedient image bearer of God. And he has reconciled all things to himself by the blood of his very own cross. See, we continue the filling of God's world with divine image bearers as we joyfully share this good news with others. And God will bring about the spiritual new birth like the first birth that he did in Genesis 1. But God also tells the humans to subdue the earth, to have dominion, to rule over the rest of creation. So imagine the, the, the imagery of a royal figure representing God, right? As, he's, uh, as, as God's appointed ruler. That's the dignity, that's the honor that he's placed on us as divine image bearers. Psalm 8, the psalmist says it like this. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him, mankind, dominion over the works of your hands, and you've put all things under his feet. See, I found it freshly surprising, again, that God appoints humans as rulers over creation. Now, what does that practically mean? What does that mean for us tomorrow? Do I just, you know, go grab a shovel and a trowel and start tearing up my front yard, you know, I'm going to show my dominion over you, right? Start ripping down some vines and cutting down some trees, you know? Is that what that means? Like, come on, animals, obey my word. No, we don't get to rule exactly the way that God has ruled over creation, but we get to rule like God. God has placed us as caretakers over his creation. Later in chapter 2, God is going to appoint Adam as a gardener and organizer of, of the other created animals naming them, giving him a job. 
So that means that we are to be good stewards of the earth. We aren't supposed to just trash it, hoping for another one. We shouldn't hunt every animal to extinction just because we feel like it. And then again, we don't worship the earth either. We should build cities. We should advance the sciences. We should explore the stars, write songs, develop vaccines, write books. God is glorified in our ruling with careful attention and bringing order where there is chaos in our world. Like the second verse of the Bible where God is hovering over the chaos of the world and bringing order into it by speaking the separation of light and darkness, by speaking the separation of the waters from the land as a place for man to dwell, we go out from here into a world and bring order where there is chaos. In so doing, we are showing our dominion and rule in this world. Animals don't do this. Animals don't build cities. Animals don't write books. Animals are cute, right? Ryan tries to show me pictures of his dog like every day. And she's really cute. Oakley's the best. Love me, Ryan. So, but animals can't display this attribute of ruling and filling creation in the way that God has intended here. So we also, there's a spiritual aspect to this as well, where we have been given spiritual authority. We are to not be ruled by anything else in all of creation. The only thing that should rule us is God himself. And although we have the authority to say no to sin and, and mirror our creator and how we rule over creation, we often miserably fail to do so. But there would come a true image bearer who rules in complete authority over all things. And under the rule of King Jesus, all of creation would experience the blessing that God pronounces over his creation. Dignity given to all. Hope in everything, value shown to all mankind, and the whole of creation absolutely flourishing. I'm going to close our time with a picture from Revelation 7, where we are given a picture of what um, is to come for us in the new heavens and new earth. This image that we're given in Revelation, spanning the whole course of time throughout the Bible, going from the beginning to the end, looks a little bit like the beginning. Revelation 7, verse 9. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. Sounds like a full earth. From every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Not ruled by anything other than God himself. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, all things in harmony with one another, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be given to our God forever and ever. Amen. This is the image that we're given at the end of all things where through Christ, all things are reconciled to itself, where all image bearers are treated with equity. I know that there's, that's not a reality in which we live in today. And we ought to repent of the ways we need to repent. 
But there is coming a day where this will be true, where man and women and all tribes and all nations and all tongues are going to gather around that throne in complete unity and sing praises to the God by which we rally around. It's King Jesus sitting on that throne. He is the divine image bearer who lived our lives perfectly in our place and died the death that we deserve for sin because the punishment that we're going to learn here in the next couple of weeks, the punishment for sin is death. And death takes, it takes us away from God and that separates us from God. And so Jesus has come to bear our sin, save and rescue us from death, and bring us to himself. Church, this is the offer on the table for us. Are we going to live in to these realities? If you're a follower of Jesus, and if you're not a follower of Jesus here, this is the offer on the table. Do you want, to, you want this type of equity? Do you want this type of loving community? Do you want to be working towards this end of all of creation where everything is as it should be? Do you just know in, the, in, your, in your core, in your gut, that something's wrong, and you don't know what it is? This is what this is. This is the answer. God has revealed himself, and he might be revealing himself to you in this moment, this morning. Throw yourselves on his mercy. Come to him as your good creator God, your father God who created you to image him. And he'll make you new. Right here, on the spot. Let me pray that he would. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us this, this precious promises, showing us your goodness, showing us your character in all of creation rightly showing us who we should be in light of who you are. God, I pray, would you make these things that we've heard this morning a reality in us? God, would you allow us to walk in the ways that you've called us to and image you in the ways that we're supposed to? God, within the men and the women in this church, in the ways that we seek to be a part of the community around us, um, bringing dignity to our jobs and the things that you've called us to, May we realize, God, that you have uh, made these things for us and it's good and right that we walk in them. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.